I started the recording now. So we start? Okay. Uh, Hello everyone. Uh, this is Hashim Fakhtadiyata or Hashim of Economics and I'm Behzad. Today we have a very special guest. Um, our guest is Professor of uh, Political Science in San Diego State University, Professor Ahmed Kuru. Uh, welcome, Professor. Thanks for having me. Um, Professor Ahmed Kuru is an author of a, a great book that I recommend everybody to read. And I think uh, this you know, podcast will be mostly about uh, his new book. The book is called Islam After Terrorism and Underdevelopment. Uh, in the book, uh, Professor Ahmed Kuru talks about uh, why, you know, when compared to world averages, uh, Muslim-majority countries uh, are both um, authoritarian and undemocratic, but also they are underdeveloped. And uh, today I invited him to talk about that. Uh, thank you for, for coming. So let me ask you a first question that, you know, we'll get in a, into your book in a second. My first question was how you thought about Huntington's book when you were writing your book. Huntington is a, was, he passed away, was a very important figure in my career because I was making, I've been, I have been making the joke in my classes that I'm teaching his article, Clash of Civilizations, that he is the sheikh of my sheikh, which means he's the guru of my guru because my PhD advisor was Joel Mikdal and his PhD advisor by, was Samuel Huntington. And Joel always asked me to be nice for Huntington when I criticize him, to be balanced. And that's one point personally. And scholarly, of course, a big name, Huntington. Uh, in 1950s, he wrote on civil-military relations, then political modernization, then democratization, and final clash of civilizations. And unfortunately, this is his least scholarly, more uh, controversial piece. But it's important to understand the mindset of many people, not only in the West, but also in the East, because I know many Muslims who like, who love Huntington's clash of civilizations. Even I heard in China, they love at least some people because saying that, look, we have a different civilization. We are not Western, we are Muslim or we are Chinese, but they don't understand the point that for Huntington, all other civilizations are inferior and Muslims and Chinese are potential, if not actual enemies. So in my book, when I criticize essentialist approach, daily life, you may call them Islamophobes, or I call sometimes civilizationist theory. Huntington, definitely a scholar I refer to, and he was inspired by Bernard Lewis, a scholar of Ottoman history, and generally present himself as a scholar of Islam. And in the famous article, Clash of Civilizations, you may call it infamous article, he only, Huntington, only cite two sources. One is Arno Tombi's famous book on civilizations, and the other is Bernard Lewis' article, The Roots of Muslim Rage. So, and I criticize both Lewis and Huntington in my new Islam book. Okay, um, one thing I, uh, so I read Huntington at, at, at different points in my life, right? So, I mean, it's, a, it's an important book, but recently what I discovered is that um, Huntington's book is almost the, one of the most read books for uh, college students in America. Like, uh, if, you, if you look at um, some websites that, you know, track down what books are assigned, most of in college, Huntington's book is one of those. And I think, I mean, at least in, in optimistic terms, that 
your book should be at least as important as Huntington's. If if every if, if somebody reads Huntington, they also should should read your book to understand the boundary conditions, if you will, of Huntington's argument. So in that sense, um, do you think that uh, Huntington's book is so popular because it kind of speaks to the biases of of uh, kind of consensus of the elites at that point, or what, what is the reason of this incredible popularity? Since the book is not, as you said, it's not like very well researched. It looks more like a reactionary opinion piece to me. Uh, but why is it so popular? First of all, you say my day by your very flattering and kind words about my book, at least the hope that it will have some impact because Huntington's book, even if it had negative implications, definitely mark and left a mark, a very important contribution that many people cite and re refer to, even if they criticize and an engagement is important. And at the very beginning of this interview, I also want to emphasize that I, I really wanted to have an interaction with uh, Central Asian intellectuals and readers. And this interview is very important for me because you mentioned that you, you'll publish with uh, Uzbek subtitles. Uh, this is very important for me because I live in Ashgabat and I have very deep interest in Central Asia and definitely Central Asia is one of the regions for me to uh, analyze in my Islam book. And it was also important for Huntington because in his article again, and then he turned it into a book by dropping the question mark. In the article, the title was Clash of Civilizations, question mark. In the book, there is no question mark. Yeah. And he was referring to three torn countries. They were Mexico, Russia, and Turkey. And for Turkey, he was saying that, can Turkey uh, go to Bruxelles or Tashkent? He, he was saying that, can Turkey be again part of European Union or establish an alliance with the newly independent former Soviet Turkic or Central Asian republics? And then he said, this is a torn country, doesn't know where to go, divided between Islamic and Western identities. My take is very different because if you look at the preface very beginning of my book and the dedication, you see that I dedicate the book to my father who passed away 15 years ago with an anecdote about him. And I owe him very much to really read about this topic. Uh, he was grappling with the question of Muslim rise and decline of Muslim civilization. But I also dedicate my book to two of my sons, to my sons. Uh, one is 13, the other seven years old. And I said that they are both Muslim and Western. So therefore, Huntington's notion of clash of civilizations has no place in my family because I have children who are American and Turkish. And it's great that in the United States, we have hyphenated identities, Turkish, American. So, then the second part of your question, why did it become so popular? Uh, definitely it, it is providing an alternative to the Cold War mentality with the same trajectory. Because when the Cold War ended between 1989 and 1991, there was a question to fill the vacuum. 
And Fukuyama and others says liberal democracy won. And Huntington came with this notion to replace the American strategies instead of communist threats, you now have Islamist threats, Islamo-Chinese threats in his formula. The worst case for him is the rest versus the West, if all other civilizations, six, seven of them, attack the West is the worst one. But the more likely scenario is Muslim-Chinese cooperation or alliance. And you are right that since this really revealed the mindset of many American Western or otherwise policymakers, it became very popular. And look, we have a huge army in the United States, half a trillion dollar budget. And in about 80 different countries or so, United States have bases. And what would these institutions do without any strategic target? So Huntington, responding the critique says that United States always have some enemies to use the power. Now it has power with no enemy or any goal that I am providing the goal. And let me conclude saying that uh, ideas are important things, but they always need to be part of structures. If the conditions are right, there's nothing more powerful than a, a very timely idea. And turning to my book on Islam, I think it is timely because for many years, scholars and others follow Edward Said's Orientalism book, very important book, and almost the polar opposite of Huntington. But it has been overused, misused by the apologists of Islam and Muslim culture. They blame anyone who have a critical opinion as Orientalists. And I face it myself too, that they are, so there is these two polar opposites. On the one hand, there are Huntington and essentialist Islamophobes. On the other hand, there are these post-colonial terrorists. Those who use Edward Orientalism book, anyone with critical mind as an Orientalist and racist or American spy or imposing American agenda. So that's why I take on both sides, saying that Huntington and others, you are wrong, that there is no clash of civilization and Islam is not the culprit. But post-colonial, post-modern relativist scholars, you are wrong too, because there really is a problem in the Muslim world. 49 Muslim majority countries have a disproportionate level of authoritarianism and underdevelopment. We have to face this problem. We cannot simply go over deny in an apologetic way okay uh since we came to the main uh idea of the book right so the book is built on this premise um i think well research premise that most of the muslim majority countries 49 of them are both underdeveloped and have uh, uh poorly constructed political institutions because most of them are authoritarian or even those that are democratic uh are not you know very democratic because you know the word the, the democratic and authoritarian is not a, like a dichotomous variable. It's, it's more of a continuous thing. Like, you know, you can be more or, or, or less democratic. And in that kind of spectrum, uh, you know, Muslim majority countries are on, on more of, you know, concentrated on the authoritarian side of things than, than on the democratic side of things. So in, in this dichotomy, um, one question that comes to mind, I think, naturally is uh, overall, do you think that 
part of the underdevelopment story is explained by the political institutions or those two things underdevelopment and authoritarianism are somehow you know uncorrelated how how would you think about that like uh, does democracy cause growth kind of question that that's I'm trying to answer answer first cuz you know uh, so sorry to, to interrupt again uh your argument is that saying muslim countries because of the variable that they developed that we'll get into in a second are have this both two things underdeveloped and authoritarian what i'm saying maybe those two things are, are are not really the consequences maybe one is the cause of another or or maybe not so what what's your take on that that's a great question thank you and you know there are three problems i start with in the book one is violence i drop it from the title i didn't put it in the title and in the first chapter i try to explain to readers that muslim don't have a specific exception problem of violence violence is human problem and as i said united states it has the enormous violence capacity so are other western countries russia china etc then i said what we see in the muslim world as terrorism civil war and interstate wars are consequences of two problems authoritarianism and underdevelopment now you are asking me the relationship between the two and on the one hand they are interconnected but uh, the real problem is underdevelopment all the authoritarianism has its own roots and reasons for example authoritarian islamic or quasi islamic or islamist ideas preached by ulama the islamic scholars sometimes called the mullahs the sufi sheikhs who are supposed to be very tolerant but they are not throughout the muslim world with some exceptions and the islamist politicians mostly with again exceptions and each of the three groups have exceptions for example the nahdatul ulama and your muhammadiyah in indonesia are have ulamas with certain open minded people sufi sheikhs in senegal have more open minded sheikhs islamists like rashid kanushi and and nahda in tunisia contribute to democracy but these are exceptions generally they preach certain ideas with problems so even if socio economic underdevelopment and institutions problem are solved we still need to deal with these ideas so therefore structure and ideas together or ideas and institutions together authoritarianism has its own roots related to for example ideas and islamic ideas quasi islamic islamists are problematic but secularist ideas are problematic too in most part of the muslim world when secularists think about politics state society relations they are very authoritarian and these are source of the problem but in addition to these ideas there are institutional structure of muslim countries very much related to the problem of socioeconomic underdevelopment and at this point you are right and if you really force me to say something about that i would say that the deeper problem is underdevelopment because underdevelopment is also related to the persistence of islamic and secularist authoritarian ideas so look if afghanistan for example would be an atheist country under this economic conditions it would produce an authoritarian atheism 
if it was a Buddhist country, it would produce authoritarian Buddhism because uh, the socio-economic structure are very underprivileged. There are many problems. And historically, also I would say under development first because democracy is a new concept or institution. Some argue that here in the United States, we have a democracy since 1960s after the civil rights movement. Until the civil rights movement, we really didn't have a fully liberal democracy. This is an argument. Some yeah. argue that it, it happened after 1920s women's suffrage. Some argue that in early 80s, only taxpayers' property owners were paying. So therefore, what I'm saying is that when you look at the problem of democracy versus authoritarianism, it is an issue of the last two centuries or three centuries. But underdevelopment is a bigger problem of a millennium because it's, you may have a developed authoritarian regime. I'll, I'll talk about it toward the end. But in the case of Muslim countries, uh, initially between the 8th and 12th centuries, they had enormous cutting-edge, world-renowned achievements in philosophy and socioeconomic development, or science and socioeconomic life. And if it had continued, it would have, it could have produced democracy, but it didn't continue. Intellectual and socioeconomic decline led to a certain level of decline in literacy, in industrialization, in uh, or industrialization or any work of industry, and the decline of urban life, and it brings us to the vicious circle today. Let, let me conclude saying that it's a vicious circle. It produces each other, but the bottom and historically long-lasting problem is underdevelopment. And the final thing, if you let me continue, is the comparison between East Asia and the Middle East, because this is a big challenge I receive. People say, oh, in your book, you combine the problem of development with the problems of underdevelopment with authoritarianism. But look at China, look at East Asian countries. They are authoritarian, but still achieving economic growth. My answer to that is that, first of all, we are not sure about China and others, whether they will be long lasting or not. Soviet Union was successful, then declined. Second, even in East Asia, half of these so-called Asian tigers became democratic, like South Korea, Taiwan, and others, in order to continue their path of development. There's one thing. The second thing, very briefly, I'll, I want to say is that there are types of authoritarianism in the Muslim world in general, as I try to explain in my book. Authoritarian states are rentier. Now they mostly use oil revenue, whereas in East Asia, it is export-oriented, productive, authoritarian economic model. Second, in most Muslim countries, authoritarian states are very military, especially in the Middle East. Look at Turkey today. There is the foreign policy is always related to a military tension now with many neighbors, etc. This is how authoritarian regimes survive and reproduce itself. 
Whereas in East Asia, in the last 40, 50 years, they achieved an economic interdependency with certain less military emphasis. Third, in the Muslim world, authoritarian states are mostly related to state clergy alliance. I call it ulama state alliance. Whereas in East Asia, they are more secular. There is no problem of ulama in East Asia. Four, in East Asia, we know the numerical evaluations that governance is very effective. There is certain level of meritocratic bureaucracy, not perfect, but better than Middle East effective governance, which lacks in many Middle East countries. Fourth and final, fifth and final, East Asian authoritarian regimes heavily invested in education. From literacy to K-12 education, they are very successful. That's not the case in the Muslim world. And in comparative exam scores, Muslims generally at the bottom, East Asian top. Therefore, even if authoritarianism coexists with development in East Asia this is not the case in the Muslim world, especially in the Middle East. Yeah, thank you. That's, uh, that's a very illuminating answer. I mean, overall, um, if you look at the history of the world, like economic development, um, from, you know, very old times till almost 17th century, the economic growth was meager, right? So it wasn't even like a percent a century. And then, you know, something happened and the world uh, living standards increased tremendously. And a lot of people, especially economic historians, argue that this is about values. This is about culture. This is about philosophy. And in your book, you also talk a lot about philosophy. And there is one idea that I really like. And I think uh, there's a lot of, uh, uh, res um, how can I say, it? It, it can resonate with a lot of economic um, uh, history ideas. This is you talked about bourgeois uh, and philosophers kind of alliance uh, versus ulama and state alliance. So before we get into the, the main kind of variable, the ulama state alliance, uh, can you tell me why and how the bourgeois values uh, are important generally and why those bourgeois values or uh, philosophers and bourgeois, uh, how do I say, cooperation, was helpful for Muslim civilization from the 8th till 11th century? Like, what is it, what, what kind of values this is? And what is about this, you know, merchant class you talk about, bourgeois you talk about, like, can you tell me more about, more about those? Thank you. And uh, let me very briefly start with the main argument in the book. So uh, the, for the listeners who didn't have the chance to read or even see the book, so it's Islam, authoritarianism, and underdevelopment, a global and historical comparison. It's global because in the first part, present, I tried to contextualize 49 Muslim-majority countries in terms of problems of violence, authoritarianism, and underdevelopment in a global comparison, not only with West, but the rest of the world, as I just said, East Asia and others. Then the second part is a historical comparison of two main things. One is comparing the Muslim world between 8th to mid-11th centuries then the Muslim world after mid-11th centuries. That's one comparison because I called this kind of golden age of philosophy and trade between 8th and mid-11th centuries. Then certain level of stagnation afterwards. 
another comparison I'm doing is comparing the Muslim world with Western Europe. And the argument is based on the relation between four classes. As I rightly referred to, there is the state authorities. They don't have to be simply king or queen, but military aristocracy or military oligarchy like Mamluks or some bureaucrats like Nizam al-Mulk in Selçuk Empire, so state authorities. Then the clergy, an established class of religious people called ulama or mullahs. And the third is the economic class. You can call proto-bourgeoisie or the merchants. Then the fourth and last is intellectuals maybe religious scholars with independent mind and critical mind, not state servants, or more secular philosophers, polymaths, intellectuals. So these four classes had very different levels and mode of relationship in Western Europe and the Muslim world between eight to mid 11th centuries. In the Muslim world, as you said, the merchants and the scholars or intellectuals had a close cooperation. And I cite an article of Cohen, which brought us very important data between eight to mid 11th century, analyzing 3,900 Islamic scholars, ulama, 91% were privately funded, only 9% were receiving money from the state. And this 91% had enormous level of variation having merchants themselves, like Abu Hanife, a silk merchant, or a barber, or a porter carrying things bodily. So therefore, there was clearly a separation of re between religious and state authorities and close contact with the ulama, religious scholars, and the merchants. Yes, at that time, certain scholars like Ibn Sina, Biruni, Farabi received state patronage, but they didn't become state servant in a way to justify state ideology, in a way to be socialized and produced in a state institution. No, they had a certain level of interest-based interaction with state rulers without becoming today's ulema type state servant. So that's the Muslim world. Whereas in Western Europe, from 8th to mid 11th century, there were the Catholic clergy, religious authority, and the state authority dominating very little, almost non-existence of intellectuals and the bourgeois. Today, some historians or social scientists claim to deny, they try to deny the fact that Western Europe was really uh, inferior in comparison to the Muslim world, they, because they assumed that since eventually Western Europe became dominant, it starts as superior from the very beginning, almost a linear progress, which is absolutely wrong because history does not follow a linear path. There are always cycles, zigzags, back and forth, rise and fall, increase and decline. And the Muslim world were superior to Western Europe on many grounds, including, for example, city size. Baghdad was reportedly had between 500,000 and 1 million population. 
in the 9th and 10th centuries when the biggest European city, Palermo, had only 20,000 people. And the size of population in city related to intellectual life because Muslims had libraries in Baghdad, Cairo, and Cordoba. And there are reports that the one in Cairo had 2 million volumes. I think it's impossible, it's exaggeration, but let's say it is 200,000, still way bigger than few hundreds books in European monasteries. So this is the class relations and its results. Whereas later on, uh, maybe we can elaborate uh, in another question, in the mid 11th century, there was the economic transformation from the market economy to more quote-unquote semi-feudal system of state control over economy, especially lands and land distribution. Second, there was militarization of the state structure, starting with Ghaznavids, followed by Selchuks. Then after the Mongol invasions, the military model was regarded as the norm in the AUBs against the Crusaders too. Then the Mamluks, then the Ottomans, Safavia Mughals, military base structure. Third, with the marginalization of merchants, then ulama need now a source of funding. And then the state started to encourage the opening of politically motivated madrasas with the name of Nizam al-Mulk's first opening madrasa in Baghdad. They are then called generally Nizamiya madrasas, starting in Central Asia, then Iran, Iraq, all the way Syria, Egypt, and other parts of the Muslim world. And Ottomans brought this model of Iqta or Timar system, Wakuf lending for the ulama, madrasas, ulama state alliance to the Balkans and East Europe, marginalizing the intellectuals and merchants, and favoring the ulama and madrasa as almost having the monopoly over the intellectual life. Even the term philosophy, philosophy, philosophers became a very pejorative term not to be used again. Whereas in Europe, the opposite transformation, starting with the mid 11th century again, there was an accident between the church and the Holy Roman Emperor. Each side tried to dominate each other and failed, which created a balance of power. Under these circumstances, universities and bourgeoisie started to emerge, an intellectual class and the merchant class supporting each other, becoming the engine of Renaissance, printing revolution, then followed by the scientific revolution, enlightenment and modern revolutions. And as you said, in the 18th and 19th century, there was the boom with the industrialization, but the boom had roots. It is not an accident. Correct. It was a well-rooted process. So therefore, the class relations was at the bottom of the transformation in both sides and almost the reverse positions in the Muslim world and Western Europe. And concluding by your question, why and how come these two classes of merchants and intellectuals support each other? In the Muslim world, Abu Hanifa, 
the founder of first and uh, important Muslim Mashab Islamic School of Law, Hanafi. He was a silk merchant, an independent scholar, stood up against the state authorities. Therefore, he was imprisoned and killed. The example in Western Europe is the Medici family, as a bourgeois family, who produced and supported many important names of Renaissance. I know a lot of um, historians may think of social scientists as the determinists, but like, let me be determinist for a second. Um, Imagine uh, a flourishing economy uh, like uh, from 8th to mid-11th century, like the one in, uh, uh, in the Middle East. Um, and then something happens in the, in the middle 11th century, which you call Ulama State Alliance. Um, but as far as I understand the point, uh, and it's, it's very subtle, that first thing that happened, it wasn't necessarily a co-optation of ulamas from the state, but pre what predates that co-optation was that states started nationalizing economic assets, right? So uh, I think this, this theme is very, very uh, close to me because, uh, you know, in the 1970, uh, the communistic revolution, the idea of it was to nationalize all the assets of people, like people were uh, lost their homes, lost their uh, dwellings, lost their land. And then in 91, there was, uh, for example, in Russia and, and, and other parts of the country, they kind of get back to the circle one. And then in like uh, after 2010 in Russia, it was it was called and it's still called like mass nationalization of assets. Right. So the privatization that happened in 91 was kind of reversed in the mid 2010s. Um, you know, they took away UCAS and they took away other uh, kind of important uh, oil and gas, um, you know, producers and so on. And now the state's power economically is again very, very strong, say in Russia. So. Is that what happened in, in, in 11th century, meaning the, the state basically started to nationalize the, both the lands, like agriculture, but also like trade routes and so on, so that the power of merchants in economic activity shrinked and then power of bureaucrats in economic activity uh, increased. And that was the cause of the co-optation. Or am I missing something? Yes and no. Okay. Yes. Because you summarize very well, and there are definitely comparisons. That's what states are generally doing if no one stops them. Yes. You know, you know the jokes that they ask Pharaoh, how you become so powerful? He said, no one stops me, the pharaohs in Egypt. Yeah. So we have to stop. And in the West End case, the bourgeoisie was able to stop. Uh, the best example are the cases of England and Dutch or Netherlands, how they stopped uh, the state power and so, so do you mean like Magna Carta? Like, no, no, the uh, glorious revolution okay. of 16, uh, glorious revolution of 16, uh, 79 or so, uh, after which the property rights was really taken under the control of the British Parliament and then the, the English king accepted the authority yeah. which really resulted and this is the argument of Douglas North, Darana Jamul and many yeah, yeah, yeah. the glorious evolution. So this is only one part of it. There is the ideational part about the persistence of it. It's a very complex and very difficult process because on the one hand as you said 
there are structural economic institutional factors. State becoming more military, state controlling economy. The Muslim bourgeoisie was defeated by military states. And then the ulama became part of this structure. Was the ulama, were the ulama willingly accept to be part of it or were co-opted by force? Oh. This, is, this is very difficult. This is why throughout my book, I always emphasize ulama state alliance. They are two parts of the story. We cannot see the ulama as victim. We, we are not, uh, there is no oppressing state and victimized ulama. They are together in this problem. And even in the case of Saudi Arabia, you see the king at the top using the Wahhabi clergy, but the clergy gain much influence. Even in the case of the Ottoman Empire, you may think that the Sultan is a superior, but no, ulema were part of the power process because in many cases, the ulema issue fatwa to replace the Sultan, to remove the Sultan by genocidal force, by ulema fatwa or justification. This is one side. On the other side, in some cases, you think the ulama supreme, like the best example is Iran today. Yeah. They have the supreme leader, they have the mullahs, but still the state interests, or let's call the raison d'etat, the purpose and meaning and then the interest of the state is very important in Iran. Even Khomeini said that when state interests are needed, the Islamic Republic can cancel Islamic religious worship duties, etc. So that level of state importance recognized by ulama, they are together. I think the life and teaching and writing of Ghazali is very crucial, not only historically, even today. If you search for an, a book that shaped Muslims' mind after the Quran and the Buhari and Muslims' hadith, you will find most probably Ikhya Ulumitin of Imam Ghazali, the re revival of religious sciences written by him, has been translated to almost all Muslim languages, major ones, and the Shia has the Shia version because a Shia alim or scholar uh, wrote an adaptation of Ikhya Ulumitin. And this Ghazali is a very important figure because on the one hand, he was the ideologue of ulema state alliance, that religion and state are twins. Religion is the foundation, state is the guardian. The one without foundation collapse, the one without guardian it perishes. Ghazali is a smart guy, smart, let's, let's call it a scholar, not guy and a genius and he they generally say that he is the second most influential figure in islamic history after the prophet himself he didn't quote this and hadith i recently just checked and in arabic he said someone says but after him this has been reported as an hadith this is the problem this idea became glorified as part of islam which is, in fact, is a Sasani idea, pre-Islamic Iranian thought. 
So he, Ghazali, contribute ulema state alliance by attacking two targets of the ulema state alliance. One is philosophers. Ghazali wrote the famous book, the inconsistencies of philosophers. And at the end of the book, he said that philosophers are infidel for three reasons and them and their followers can be punished by death. This is a very notorious idea. Even today, people may be defined as apostate and killed. And this idea really coming from Ghazali and scholars like him. And the second target was Ismaili Shia. For political reasons, he wrote a very detailed critique of them and again issued a fatwa that they could be killed. This is one aspect of Ghazali, a continuous impact until today. The second aspect is that, very interesting, and let me conclude by this because directly answering your question, at the age of 40, he had a crisis. For mystics, it was a spiritual crisis coming from God, but you can call it a midlife crisis. He, he regretted that he served the state. Then he left the chair position in the university or let's say madrasa. He went to a, a, a two years journey, one and a half year journey in Jerusalem, Mecca, Damascus, went to the graveyard of Prophet Abraham and took an oath that he would never receive money from state authorities. He would never teach in a state-based institution and he would never have close contact with state authorities. And basically, we don't need to be anachronistic. They generally use the term sultan, sultanate, power instead of state. Dole is a later term used by Ottomans. Or sometimes they say Malik, referring to royal authority. But basically, they refer what we call to say today, state authority. So this show that even Ghazali, even the ideologue, had a crisis, had suspicions, has regrets that there is that much connection he had. Then he spent rest of his life in mostly isolation. He established a personal a Sufi lodge and a madrasa to teach privately to his about decade. And then only one year or so, the state forced him to come back. He went back to Nizamiya Madrasa for one, two years. That's it. Then even the main ideologue of this system knew that there was a problem and regret in his life. So then the answer to your question, on the one hand, of course, there is the enforcement. If ulama today would say, oh, we read Ahmed Kuru's book, we, <laughs> we hate to be aligned with state. We want merchants as our new partners. State will intervene by violence. Certain ulama also enjoy the partnership because it provides them enormous level of power. It provides them monopoly to decide what is right, what is wrong, what is Islam, what is not, what can be taught, what cannot, whether printing press can bellow or cannot. So this is a symbiotic relationship, but the original idea that Islam, Islamic ethics requires certain distance from political authority was preserved even at the time of Ghazali, even today. This is this inconsistency. Even today, you ask 
many scholars say, of course, we should be distant from state. State is corrupt. There is this dilemma and contradiction. So uh, let me ask you this question. I think um, a lot of people agree, uh, and right, right now this is a, a hot topic even in the U.S., uh, that one of the most important development critical junctures in the history of the world was the separation of the church from the state kind of idea, right? So this happened in Europe where uh, European leaders thought uh, that, you know, church and state should be separate and, and then there was a down, downstream consequence. Even in the U.S. Constitution, this this idea is enshrined, right? So that um, state and church are separated. And if you go out and read the constitutions of probably every other Muslim country, uh, Muslim majority country, except for a few exceptions, most of them actually do say that, right? I mean, you put that in your book. Uh, I think Uzbekistan says it explicitly even. But if you look at the kind of de facto how the state and I don't want to call it church, but let's call it uh, like a religious hierarchy, uh, uh, how they work, you see that most of the, say, religious thinkers in, in, in those states are, are well within this state hierarchy uh, of, of um, control, right? So there is almost no uh, Muslim majority country in which uh, clergy operates independently of the state. So, do you think that uh, do you think that the the fact that this is this is true, like this is empirically true, that state and, and church are are, are together, uh, does that mean that we didn't we as in Muslims didn't actually process this idea that you know dawlah and din, like the state and 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 religion should should be separate? Like, do you think that that's the main main impediment for the development of Muslim societies? Another great question. It is a problem because the separation between different spheres of life, like religion, state, academia, economy, arts, sports, is important for each of them to be autonomous, have their own criteria of success and failure, have their own dignity. If you, for example, calculate too much religious criteria for academically success, then you end up with nepotism and tribalism, you use sectarianism, etc. So for each of these spheres, independence, autonomy is important for justice, fairness, productivity. And in the West and the Muslim world, everywhere, the this clergy state alliance has been the norm most of human history. Therefore, it was something really precious and important that Muslims achieve between 8th and mid-11th century in terms of state clergy separation. And it is also rare and precious what we say in the Western Europe and North America since the American and French revolutions. It's, it's an exceptional thing, very important, very helpful. And in the Muslim world, as you said, in my chapter, out of 49 Muslim majority countries, 22 have secular states. 13 of them explicitly say this is a secular republic. But in practice, even in Turkey, it wasn't possible to really separate because 
of two reasons. One, historically, there is this legacy of ulema state alliance, institutional ideational. Second, we don't have a theoretically consistent and deep analysis and claim. We Muslims did not produce a John Locke with certain theory of separation as he did at least in the pamphlet, a letter of toleration. We always have some top-down reformists like Ataturk, Jamal Abdul Nasser, who was a military hero and tried to change things authoritarian manner, top-down, with very little theoretical, intellectual explanation, understanding. I think this is the problem why our secular states are not really secular and there is still no theory of separation which is really necessary and needed. I see. Uh, when I, was re I mean, when I read any book, I try to find a counterexample so that I would know where this theory failed. So when I was trying to read your book and I was trying to find a counterexample, and, and, and when, when I mean the idea not only about Islam, it's, it's about any type of religion and, and, and state kind of alliance. Uh, one thing that kind of struck my uh, how, how the thinking was, how does this work uh, during the Soviet times, right? Uh, you know that the Russian uh, Orthodox Church was part of this hierarchy within uh, Russian Empire. And this was the case for, for Muslim clergy in Central Asia before, before Soviet Union, right? So the clergy was with the state. The Catholic, uh, sorry, the Orthodox Church was within the state, and what happens is there's new revolution, which mm, partly, at least, claims the idea of sec secular state, and also claims kind of a, a type of violence, uh, or I would say, violent atheism, right? Like people could be persecuted for their religious beliefs. Like if you are a practicing uh, Orthodox person, a Jew, or or a Muslim in the Soviet system, you may be actually persecuted under under that law, especially uh, right after the Civil War, like after the 20s till almost uh, 40s, that, you know, having some kind of uh, openly religious affiliation would, would get you in trouble. And you may say, all right, that's the first time where the state willingly is breaking up with uh, religious authorities. Like they are saying, all right, we, so they made from the main church in Moscow, they made a swimming pool. A lot of uh, big mosques in, uh, in Uzbekistan, for example, were turned into... Houses and hospitals and you know anything but not like a mosque and uh, and and that kind of situation should may, may may kind of produce the actual in fact de facto separation and what happens curiously to my mind was that in the end of the 30s and beginning of the 40s the Soviet uh, leadership which is again violently atheistic they write these memos about we should create a, a church. And then they write about we should create a Muslim clergy. And they do actually with the help of uh, now what's called um, 
kind of a KGB, it was called uh, um, by a different name at the time, the, their ideological kind of section, they create this idea of how do we control the religion. And in this memos, they say, all right, we have to have a, you know, Orthodox church, we have to have their schools, you know, we can we control them, we produce the clergy that we need that are, uh, and I'm, I'm quoting here, it says, that are aligned with the values of the communistic ideals. So they want to create uh, religions uh, which are, you know, how, how different is, is, say, Muslims from Orthodox and, and Jewish? And so the Soviet kind of apparatchiks want to create this, and they do create this. And right now, in whatever, 2020, that institution that was created, uh, like in late Stalin's era, are still kind of persistent. Like Russian Orthodox Church had had these leaders in their hierarchy from that time. And, and, and I would say the same thing for Muslim clergy in Central Asia. They are well within the state hierarchies. And so what I didn't understand was why on earth a state like Soviet state, which is violent atheistic, wants to go into the deal with clergy. Like this is the question that I don't have a clear answer to, although it is illegal again and it, it's bad, but they still kind of pursue it. So what, what, how would you think about that? A very important example as everything history is laboratory in the laboratory the soviet example yeah. was very important and first of all it shows us the gap between theory and practice everywhere the theoretical ideals goals had to adapt and follow the practical position in the real life and you can't impose your utopia to the people and in that particular example. I think it happened under the conditions of the Second World War. Stalin needed to mobilize everything and he wanted to mobilize religion because he was told or he taught himself that people are motivated by religion. Why don't you use that one too? Even if we don't agree, it is a strategy and means in or end of defeating Nazi Germany. And that's again seemed appeal to control the masses because how would you control the masses religious leaders if you address them and then they address to the people who take religion seriously it's a way of governing for the state even for soviet unions and so therefore it's a way of dealing the people who have long history of believing religious clergy and then following them and I think that's a very good example of this strategic governance. Okay, uh, thank you. One, I think, uh, more example that I, I don't know how we, uh, you thought about it is uh, in a new book, uh, Darana Chamoglu and James Robinson, uh, the book called Nora Corridor, they talked about your uh, kind of your idea in a way of state and, uh, and ulama alliance in uh, Arabian Peninsula. So in, a, in, in the beginning 20th century, there's this, I think the the name of the chapter is, is something along those lines. There's like a deal between, you know, a church and the state. So, and then there's so many examples of it throughout the history in any kind of given century, like in 20th century in the Arabian Peninsula and uh, in late 20th century in Egypt, for example, and so on. Uh, one question that uh, again comes to my mind, why the oppositional ideas, right? So you mentioned, the, I think, the brother of the founder of the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, and, so, and so on and so forth. Why their voices are not heard? Why 
uh, why they're always kind of uh, don't have an upper hand, like why they always lose for 10 centuries in a row. Like what's, what's, what's happening? Yeah, this is the question, $1 million question. Uh, first of all, Ajemol's book is very important and we will have him at my San Diego State University February 24th to talk about the book. I can ask, ask him this, your question. <laughs> but in general, when we look at the Saudi or other examples of the, the, the ulema state alliance and, and, and how they persist, we have to look at both dimensions again. In terms of, this is what you ask, right? The persistence? Opposite force ever kind of got an upper hand. Like why it never yeah. happened? Yeah, this is a very big question. So uh, first of all, as I said, the certain level of connection between state clergy is the norm, even in Western countries today, even a member of EU, there are established churches in Greece, in Norway, in several parts. And it, therefore, even in France, it took very late, 1905, to really separate church and state. This, this is really a kind of normal thing with exceptions we see in early Islamic history and West today. Second, this is not part of theological difference between Islam and Christianity because Samuel Huntington and Bernard Lewis referred to a gospel phrase, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, but it's not that simple. Christianity always thought about this. And it's not an issue of a fabricated hadith either. So therefore, I said Islam has its own experience of separation. But having said that, Today, the established, constructed understanding of Islam reproduced this ulema state alliance. Many Muslims believe that it is an Islamic order. Therefore, this is very difficult to challenge. When you do, they call you a kafir, or infidel, an apostate who deny teaching of Islam. So, for example, when you look at Islam politics relations, very interestingly, there are only two and a half books you can find. One book, Mabardi, 11th century. Half book, third of Ghazali's book on Teo, uh, Kalam. Uh, can can I repeat who's, who, who's the author? Ma, Ma... Okay, the first one is Mawardi. Mawardi is the author of one book, Al-Ahkam al-Sultaniyya, or the Ordinance of Governance, who put the theory of caliphate. He is the first and perhaps the only one. Even Ibn Khaldun in 1377, three centuries after Mawardi, wrote his Muqaddimah. He says, I am not talking about the fiqh or the Islamic jurisprudential aspect of the caliphate. If you want to learn, go and read Mawardi. So this is the only source since 11th century, Mawardi, book on caliphate. Ghazali in his book, Al-Iqtisad Filitikat, The Moderation in Faith, just have a chapter on it, repeating what Mawardi said mostly. Therefore, it's half book or we'll put aside. The second and only book is the 13th century or early 14th century, Ibn Taymiyyah. He wrote, the second book we know about, 
Islam is political theory and caliphate and other things. So what is the importance of Mawardi and Ibn Taymiyyah, 11th century, 14th century? They look at the Quran, find only one phrase about, that they can use to justify their theory. And the phrase says, oh, you the believers follow God, obey God and the prophet and those who have authority among you. And in Arabic, it says, Ulul Amr Min Kum. Ulul Amr, those who have authority. But it's open-ended interpretation. You can say those who have wisdom, knowledge, expertise in terms of being author authoritative. But Mawardi used this referring to caliph. There should be one leader. The leader justify everything else. Without the caliph, the marriages are not legal. Without the caliph courts, no justification. Uh, 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 so, sorry, sorry to interrupt. How, how was this ayah uh, interpreted in, say, in Ibn Kathir or something? Like, how, uh, how this so interpretation changed through time? The, the others make it more open-ended. Ibn Kathir or others, if you look, and Asma of Sauruddin has a book about it, looking different tafsir interpretations, it has not been consolidated until the 11th century. There were many alternatives, as I said, referring to wisdom, etc. The Mawardi make the political authority caliph, but three centuries later, no more caliph because Mongols destroy Abbasi caliphate. And Ibn Taymiyyah wanted to justify Mamluk regime, and he said this verse referred to ulama and umara. Ulama is what I call ulama, and umara are state authorities. He basically said that the ulema state alliance is ordered by this word, obey those who have authority. This is just one example of how they establish a new Islam, a new understanding of Islam based on ulema and state. And then now they can tell you some hadith as if the prophet used this terminology, ulema state. Uh, they, uh, and then this is the way that really persists itself ideationally. And these ideas need to be challenged. So far, not challenged because people are afraid. If you challenge, they say you are not a good Muslim. You don't know. And then who are you? Are you part of ulema? Do you speak Arabic? If I say, yes, I speak Arabic, then they say, how many hadiths did you memorize? If you go and memorize hadiths, they say, do you have a license from a madrasa? If you get a license, they say, do you have an inspiration, in your fun in your heart? They don't let you talk about Islam. This is the general understanding, even the masses, not the elite ulama, the Muslim masses, they always trust the history. They live in history. You, can, you should bring something from history. I cannot refer to you, even if you are a smart, knowledgeable person, you are not from history. They love history, 11th century, 12th century. So that's one part of you, the answer. Yeah, this, this is a very deep question though. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. Why is, uh, why is Muslims are so hung up in history? <laughs> so let me I, I agree with you, I agree with you, but yeah. I just don't understand this. This is very important. Okay, let me yeah, put it aside. Yeah, yeah okay. we will come. But basically, why is it persistent? Because religion is redefined based on that. Second, there are economic interests. 
ICTA system, Timar system land, today oil revenues, they share money, they share power. This is a very strong, powerful alliance. Bourgeoisie and intellectuals have hard time to challenge. So this is the answer to persistence. Now the answer about Albenna, uh, Abdul Rezak in Egypt, Said Bey in Turkey, the three figures who challenged Mawardi, who challenged Ibn Taymiyyah, who said, no, caliphate is not necessary. Ulema State Alliance is not part of Islam. But these people became marginal. Why? Because on the one hand, the religious conservatives don't like them. They say, oh, you are too much reformist. You can destroy Islam. On the other hand, secularists don't like them because they seem too religious to secularist taste. Atatürk, for example, used this Seyyid Bey, who gave an important speech in Turkish parliament to convince deputies to abolish the caliphate. Then after Atatürk said, you feel fill your mission, then replace him as staunchly secularist minister of justice. So being in the middle ground makes people unhappy. And I think my book also received fierce critics both from both sides. Religious conservatives don't like it, saying that, oh, this is too critical. Anti-religious don't like it, saying, what is Islam? Why, why are you talking about Islam? It's an outdated thing. It's obsolete. I have friends saying to me, Ahmed, you are a smart guy. Why are you still studying Islam? <laughs> so to be in the middle really make you marginal. Now your question about history. Because history is regarded sacred. And the glorification of history is very deep that today, so the idea is that, for example, today you and I, we are following our egoism. We are too much brainwashed by the West. We are too much rash. Uh, maybe you, but not me asking. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Good for you. So we are too much rationalistic, but a millennium ago, scholars were like angels. No egoism, no appetite, fully on the service of Allah. And whatever they say is sacred. You know, this is the mentality on the vast majority, at least a portion of Muslims, that's why they still live in history. Because they think historical life was godly. And today we live in a very secular, corrupt life. I see. So, uh, you know, um, uh, there is this historian called Joel Mocker. Uh, it, uh, he's like economic historian in Northwestern. He has this book called The Culture of Growth. And uh, when so you, so I think a person to have a sanity has to read your book with Joel Mocker's book together, because Joel Mocker's book is an optimistic book. What he talks mainly is about, you know, this idea of questioning authority, this idea of always be suspicious of ideas, of, of authorities, of, of, of uh, very smart people, always questioning them was basically a recipe for the Western development. And you are saying the alliance and the real living in the history was uh, a recipe for the disaster in the Muslim world. And I think reading this together kind of helps, helps people to uh, digest. And, and one, one thing I, 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 I want to say is that this was the case of, you know, living in history was very apparently persistent in Europe until almost 15th century, right? So 
even in Christianity and so on, the the scholars before us or like uh, in Europe were regarded as, as very cool. And uh, I think, uh, for example, the European uh, kind of philosophers who lived in monasteries who questioned, for example, Aristotle, for example, or, or, or somebody like that, were considered like weird, like almost, they didn't say Hazrat Aristotle, but like some so- sort of reverence to the authority of people like Aristotle was kind of expected. And I think, you know, Aristotle and all these uh, Greek philosophers who are really smart, they also made a lot of mistakes, right? Like modern physicists would know that, you know, the the you can divide atom, for example. And I think word atom in Greek means non-divisible. Like the, the, even the definition was wrong. But, you know, somebody who, who came up and said, you know, the definition was wrong was persecuted. And we all know the story of Giordano Bruno and, and, and Copernic and so on, where the the apostates of so-called uh, status quo were pro, uh, persecuted. But what I don't understand is that why this glitch happened in Europe. And as a mathematician, I have this deep feeling, and I would want to share it with you. So I studied mathematics in undergrad, and I studied in Singapore. And one thing we studied, very important in mathematical analysis, is an idea called harmonic series. Harmonic series is about convergence in mathematical analysis. And the first guy who kind of thought about it uh, is, his name is Nicolas Oresme. So he was a French, uh, you know, mathematician, philosopher, and very kind of a polymath kind of guy, but he was in the monastery. And he, he had a lot of, he got a lot of criticism, and almost uh, some people call him opposite and so on. But he was the first one who developed it. And what I read about this idea of uh, quadratic equations and so forth was that Al-Khwarazmi, who lived in, you know, Khwarazm, like modern-day Uzbekistan, Ten, uh, 500 years before Nikola Erasme was not persecuted for his idea. You know, like he was able to actually, you know, write down the quadratic equation and think about complex numbers and and, and so on and so forth. But uh, 500 years after Horazmi, somebody in Italy and somebody in France were kind of uh, persecuted. And, and, you know, at that time, you know, you feel kind of pride, you know, oh, my God, this is interesting. You know, 500 years uh, before him, somebody was writing it and no, nobody said anything. But then if you think about it from a 2020 perspective, you're like, wow, what went wrong? Why this kind of clicked in Europe and it kind of didn't click? Or I would say the click kind of got switched off in the Muslim world. And I think this question is a million dollar question that you are kind of uh, trying to persuade us about. Um, sorry for the long comment. Can I just say yeah, three? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. One is, you are right, Joel Mokri is very important, and he emphasized ideas. I try to bring this to argument. One argument about intellectuals, the other bourgeoisie, try to make the combination. Second, optimism, pessimism. You can read my book in a very optimistic way, because a major dilemma in the Muslim world, and where I was born in Turkey, is that democracy development are Western concepts. And people don't like to be really enforce a Western model. But in my book, I am asking, are you, aren't all Muslims one piece, participatory politics and development? Yes. Then you have a model between 8 to 11, 12 centuries. This is the way to have a Renaissance with very genuine Muslim history. That's very, I think, optimistic. Uh, and the third thing about Kharazmi and others, there has been too much emphasis on the Middle East. But Marshall Hoston in his three-volume Venture of Islam says, no, no, look at Iran, not other parts of Arab 
Middle East. But Frederick Starr, as you interview, recently said, look at Central Asia. And I think that's the missing point in many American and Western audience that Central Asia had a golden age with Kharazmi and Biruni and Ibn Sina and all of them. And at the time, Muslims have deep self-respect and confidence. Today, we don't have it. At the time, Kharazmi time, you said, why not persecuted? Because Muslims have self-confidence. They pick whatever they see good. Paper, oh, let's produce it. But then later on, they became too, maybe because of the Mongol invasion and uh, crusader, maybe because of the teaching of the ulama, maybe the state always make us scared of something. Today, there is the sense of being under siege and always losing our culture attitudes if we follow others good ways but we have to have more self-confidence to learn from the west the east and produce our synthesis that's what our grand grand grandfathers did at millennium ago yeah i think this is a tremendous point and to harazma's biography is that uh, he was actually a head of Baitul hikmah in baghdad right so he grew up in in harazm and in uh, harun al-rashid i think took him to, to Bayt al-Hikmah, and Bayt al-Hikmah was a place where people actually argued fiercely until the night uh, by, uh, you know, having a high pitch of volume uh, with the authorities. And, you know, like, if you think about it this way, right, right now if you uh, imagine a school of thought or philosophers where people argue, that means there is no authority. So if, if, if there is a, an institution in which there is fierce arguments and debates, that actually means uh, there, is a, there is freedom of thought and there is uh, progress. But one key aspect that you said about uh, responsibility and uh, self-confidence is also a question that I always think about. In many Muslim countries, Muslim-majority countries, people in you know, general population have this idea of uh, state paternalism. Like whatever bad thing they see, they want state to take action. They're like, all right, this is not appropriate, you know, idea persecuted like this is not appropriate clothing persecuted like your clothing may be like inappropriately open inappropriately closed whatever like all this uh i feel like a lot of so muslim majority countries have this societies that are so depend on state to take care of their inner uh beings like uh, somebody said ridiculously like you know we, we so much depend on state that you know, if if if, if in, in in my house the the it's too hot, then I I call the state. Like why the why there is uh, such paternalism in, in Muslim societies? Like I I, I have no idea. Why, why do you great question? That? I think it's again remind me the ulama state alliance. As I said, that state forced them, but later on ulama like it. Same for the people. State first forced them to be obedient. But now people are enjoying by not paying tax in many Muslim countries. When I said there's a reaction, they say, oh, people pay tax. But compare with United States, compare with Western Europe, tax evasion is almost the norm in many Muslim majority countries. We have the data about Turkey and others that people generally find a way. That's why, for example, in Turkey, the state is getting tax from oil putting 50% or so to oil products, getting money out of the people or other ways. So people always blame the state. 
never take the responsibility in general. We are talking about average in general. Yeah. So uh, suppression became a way of enjoying by just not taking responsibility anymore. But it wasn't like that historically. Give me one example. Let me give an example of Ghaznavi Mahmud. When Mahmud was ruling Balkh, which was a major metropole in Afghanistan at that time. Uh, the people of Bel, when the Karahani army came, they fought against the Karahani army and protect their city, which was normally ruled by Mahmud of the Ghaznavi. Then Mahmud came back and then people gathered around him in order, instead of appreciating the people, he yelled at them saying that, who are you, the ordinary people? How can you fight? Whenever an army came here, if I am not here, just surrender and obey. Otherwise, there is the destruction and everything. Ordinary people have no right to fight. So this is the point of view of the military state, looking us like children, not supposed to fight, not supposed to have what Ibn Haldun called asabiya, which means the group feeling, defending our position, fighting for it having both negative liberty and positive liberty. Because negative liberty is to have your own space, but positive liberty is the ability to shape the public policy and state. So there is a very famous British heart scientist, Joseph Needham. He spent half of his life to the question, why scientific revolution occurred in Western Europe, but not in China. And since then it has been called the Needham question. And he went China and produced volumes about Chinese science. And at the end, when he tried to formulate the answer, he said that there's a painting about a city state in Europe, how people of the city gain their armor and their weapons to protect the city against the aggressor as a community, as the people of the city, not waiting for an army to protect them. That was the secret of independence, autonomy, creativity, taking action. And that's the basis of bourgeoisie revolution, bourgeoisie in Europe. That's what was missing in China because the China became more state-centric, centralized, taking independence and creativity from individuals opposite of the decentralized Europe, bourgeoisie Europe, scientifically vibrant Europe, people taking arms to defend themselves. It reminds me, Ghaznavi Mahmoud in Belgh, asking people not to take arm again, otherwise I would punish you, he said. And the Ottoman Empire, divide the people in two groups. One is the Sultan, the ulama, the Janissaries and the Tamar uh, soldiers who are like the guardians in Plato's Republic who own the state at the same time who have, carry weapon. The other ordinary people, no weapon, pay tax, don't have any intervention in politics. So uh, it's very complex, and let me conclude by Ibn Khaldun in his Muqaddimah, he said, urban people are generally becoming lazy. They have gates, 
they have walls, they have an army to protect them. Therefore, they lose their energy and self-defense. They became like children depending on the army. But rural people, the nomads, have no gates, no castle. They live a life with challenge. Every of them is ready to fight. And they don't follow an authority. Therefore, they have individual courage. And they have this asabiya. Asabiya means group feeling, solidarity. That's why the rural people, nomads, are more powerful than the urban people. And then they generally defeat them. So then uh, combine all of them that in the Muslim world, state, military states, starting with Ghaznavi Mahmud, then Seljuks, then Ottomans, all the way to today's authoritarian. Ask people to obey, to be docile bodies. But this is a problem, according to Needham, who says Europeans became successful because they have individual creativity, protecting their city. Then China, which a central empire, asking people to obey them. And Ibn Haldun says, this is the difference between rural versus urban. And answering your question today, when a person today blame the state, it reflect a thousand of year of state oppression. Now it becomes so well deeply rooted that it's regarded normal, but state oppress individuals, individuals turn it into an advantage to blame the state and not taking responsibility for anything. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I have this uh, big, big trouble with it. Like, you know, if, if something inappropriate shows up in the Uzbek TV, a lot of people like write letters and, 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 and discuss it and, and, and like try to uh, threaten it or try to tell the authorities to ban it, like from, from different types of angles, right? Like some conservatives think this is inappropriate. Sometimes if it's too conservative of a show, then Seculars think this is inappropriate and then there's like they all kind of try to fight on to what the content should be rather than like voting with their feet. Right. They have a, they have a, a right not to watch it, but then they don't exercise it. They're like, all right. It's not like only not I watch it, but also I want to ban the other guy to watch it. But but that's uh, uh, I really want to kind of uh, put the end to our uh, you know conversation, which is uh, tremendously of, of interest. But uh, let me formulate one idea and you tell me whether I understood it wrong or not. So uh, let's talk about state intervention into economy, and for which I write a lot about in, in, in Uzbek, uh, where, you know, in a country like Uzbekistan, state is, is, is everything in the economy. Like most of the important assets is controlled by state. You live in Turkmenistan, Turkmenistan is, 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 is more extreme than Uzbekistan, but like in the same kind of uh, vein where everything basically is controlled by the state. There is no personal uh, action. And um, but if you think about the state intervention from like Islamic point of view, and uh, here I come, uh, because I never studied kind of political ideas there, but I studied economic ideas. There's one case where um, Medina, the city, was attacked during the Prophet's uh, time, and the prices in the in the city's uh, bazaars increased because it's under the siege, right? So there's no uh, supply. And people of Medina come to Prophet and says, you know, can you talk to these merchants? They are... Um, you know, um, they are, you know, acting badly. They are not, they are selling the things for, for, you know, expensive price. And for which Prophet uh, allegedly responds, uh, saying something along those ideas, because I don't want to quote because I don't remember the exact quote. But the idea was that 
you know, the prices is not to be regulated by me or by anybody else. The prices come from like God, and uh, and that's the idea. And if you go and you know read Adam Smith, which happened, you know, thousand years after 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 that conversation that happened in Medina in in in, in the seventh century, uh, you will read the same idea basically that the price is uh, is a product of supply and demand, and you know intervention doesn't kind of solve the problem. And if you if at that time profit would regulate the prices, it will be like Soviet Union where there will be deficit, and you know the prices kind of actually help help increase the supply. So with this kind of theological base, why in many Muslim societies, even after the 11th century and up until now, uh, the trade, the openness to communication and trade and uh, regulating prices became such a uh, such a wrongly interpreted, like most of the time, you know, especially after the 13th century, the trade within this uh, uh, Muslim country started to be uh, controlled very, very fiercely, even in like 12th, 13th, 14th century, and, and it became very extreme, almost in 16th century, there was like no trade between, say, Bukhara and, and, and Damascus, like there was no trade, which which is very weird. So why, um, and, and so I read your book and I understood it that this state ulama alliance that you described was interference of state to the to the intellectual sphere and to the religious and spiritual sphere, but also that same thing that kind of caused this decline was also state's intervention into the economic sphere, and that economic sphere may also have uh, caused this alliance. So, do I understand it correctly? Like, does my model make sense, or or is it wrong? It makes sense. Can I say three things rather than Absolutely, just? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So first of all, you are right that they came to profit, ask him to put a narh against speculation. Narh Arabic says a price. You owe profit. Put the prices fix narh. Avoid speculation. He said God puts the narh. I wouldn't put. It's like Adam Smith. You are right. Yeah. Second, yeah. The, the, the second thing is that uh, in, in the Muslim world, the state generally, after mid-11th century, in the case of Ottomans especially, was afraid of the merchant class. One reason is ideational, that the Muslims in Iran and Iraq in the 11th, 12th centuries, for various reasons, became heavily influenced by Sasanian ideas. And I don't want to uh, blame Sasanian ideas as bad, but uh, even if you take neutrally, this is the fact that Persian language in the 11th and 12th centuries became very influential. Translations of works, new written materials, and the notion of religion state brotherhood was a Sasanian idea. The notion of class structure, according to the well-known Sasani notion of class structure, uh, the king, then the clergy, then the farmers, and then the last and despicable one is merchants. There was some very negative perception of the merchants. And you can see this again, Mawardi, an 11th century scholar, and many others' books, some level of disregarding and undermining the merchants. This is Persian, Iranian, Sasanian influence. But before that, before 11th century, Muslims appreciate the merchants because the Prophet himself 
was, was a merchant. Yeah. And the Umayyads was established by a merchant family, but things change. And after that time, again, you can ask how come this notion became persisted? Because after the Mongol invasion, Mongols destroy many uh, urban uh, irrigation systems, turn many areas, pastoral areas, rather than urban life in Iran and Central Asia. It was really uh, create problems for merchants flourish again. So therefore, the combination of Sasani ideas, Mongol destruction, and then the challenge coming from Europe and the major Muslim empire at that time, the Ottomans. You could assume Ottomans respond to the rise of Dutch British merchants to protect Ottoman infant industry and the merchants. But Ottomans didn't do that. They did the opposite. They gave advantages to foreign merchants, Europeans. Why did they do that? First, Ottomans very pragmatic they regard their interaction with first venice and genovese merchants as a division of labor they say we are a military empire we are strong and powerful let's make the venetians and genovese later the dutch english and italians other italians do the commerce that's their job and not not important they didn't see the strategic value of dominating the market because they always wanted to dominate battlefield with a military strategy. And maybe they regarded a rising possible rising emerging class as somehow challenging their monopoly of power. Yeah. And, and then, interestingly, the Ottomans wanted to support Protestant nations against their main enemy, Habsburg Catholic, and all the Dutch and English and others Protestant nations. And the economic mentality of Ottomans is called provisionalism, provisionalism, which means as long as Istanbul and other major Ottoman cities have food, no starvation, and with reasonable price, it doesn't matter whether a European merchant or a Muslim merchant bring the food and other goods. So, Ottomans did not understand mercantilism, that export, import, and your own merchants, other merchants. And then eventually Europeans dominate entire Ottoman Empire markets. Then they use their military power to keep it. Because Ottomans, of course, understood from certain level that they are losing economic ground and it's important. Muslims embraced this 11th, 12th century Iranian economic mentality, despicable merchants. The last chance for them to really understand economics was Ibn Haldun Muqaddime, yeah. 1377. And it's a wonderful book on many grounds. I analyze in my book with many aspects and one aspect is economics. But unfortunately, Ottomans, when they translated Ibn Haldun Muqaddime to Turkish, they didn't look at the economic part. They only look at the part about rise and fall of empire because they say, oh, now Ottoman Empire is falling. What is this Ibn Haldun telling us about the cycle of rise and fall? But they didn't look at the economic because Ibn Haldun said, state intervention to economy create ineffective markets. Yeah. Rulers should avoid interrupting and controlling economy. So yeah. this is our problem of the lack of economic theory.
Yeah, this is uh, this is great. I mean, the, the, this part of the conversation is something like I really uh, think about. That, that I want to uh, also uh, say, even right now in, in Uzbekistan, that there's still like kind of, uh, I, I wouldn't say hatred, but I think like pejorative use of the word commerce and trade. Like people think trade and commerce is pejorative, and then the word we use is to to kind of diminish them is olipsatar, the guy who buys and sells, and and that's like a pejorative word and in Russian even there's a word targash and it was like a Soviet pejorative word but I think that um, to your point that the Genovese and the Venetian uh, commerce people who lived in you know modern Galata Tower and and place like that in, in, in Istanbul were actually wielding a tremendous power in the in the Mediterranean trade and they were actually benefiting it and I think this uh, disregard of commerce and merchant class uh, by the by the sultans and thinking that they are just like buyers and sellers without without having under control is like a deeply flawed and wrong thinking. But I have one uh, one thing about Turkish uh, ideas that kind of become very popular in Uzbekistan. And I really want to hear your opinion on this. So there's one Turkish uh, series, movie series. I think it's about um, Suleiman the, the Magnificent, the Kanuni. Uh, and uh, I think it's from that movie. So there's this one part of the movie that is very popular in Uzbek internet. And then hundreds of times I got it on my blog that people like actually send me. And so here's the part about it. Like I'll tell you briefly. So imagine a, a justice person goes into bazaar and then, uh, and then says, how much is the, for example, bread, for example. And then he says, you know, $1 or something. And he says, how much you buy it for? And he says, I got it for 50 cents. And, and, and then this Qazi, uh, the justice says, you know, you, uh, you know, uh, like hit him because he is, he's a wrongdoer. Then he goes to the next part and he takes the bread and then he puts it into the weight and then bread is like uh, lighter than something, for example. And he says, okay, you know, you, you also get punishment. So he goes through this and intervenes into the market. So, and what he says, there was a, there's a law by, by the Sultan that says the markup shouldn't be more than 10%. And if you are doing like 100% markup, you, you are like, uh, taking away the the barakia from the from the uh, from the believers you know table or whatever and then the bread or also the the weight yeah right the weight that the merchant is selling and I think I mean as as a modern day viewer I think like what's wrong with it like if if you are buying it willingly and I mean if 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 he he says it's it's one kg but but actually it's a five hundred grams then you can say okay that's bad because you're lying but if you are selling bread as is and people can see it touch it and and buy it why it matters how many grams it is. And and so this video was so popular in Uzbekistan and people are saying, you see how this justice in, in, in religion is where the state is controlling prices. And I'm saying, you know, religion, like it, it's basically prohibited to justice to, to anybody to like go into the market and then think about markups because this is basically a, 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 like an important pillar of the religion where the, the price is not controlled by the state. There's very few exceptions, like the war and so on, in which this can be justified in a very, very kind of limited cases. But this was a popular video. And I was thinking when I thought why it's popular, I thought, you know, we lived in Soviet Union, the prices were controlled, maybe our people are missing the Soviet justice or whatever. But, you know, since talking with you and reading your book, I'm saying, no, this is not like an Uzbek problem or a Turkish problem. This is like a more of like a Muslim problem in a way we... We want the state to control our prices, to control our TV, to control our books, so that 
we are so weak that you know if we read some something in a newspaper that we disagree with we'll have a bad opinion so we want to make sure nobody reads it and so that that idea is is is, is uh very very interesting <laughs> <laughs> so let me begin with the first one uh, first of all interestingly in turkish alar satar alıp satıp say uh, very similar and yeah. we use that term in turkish and i think the ulema generally take the credit for themselves as having the pen for them referring to ulema and only allow a space to state having sword and in the ottoman system about your first question there was the combination of sharia and kanun that's why suleiman the magnificent kanuni in turkish the lawmaker so some people this means ottoman secularism it's difficult to say secular because it's a religious class dominated legal system but why and how the ulama allow the sultan to make the law justify because sultan has the sword can really put and for every sultan you have two shaykhul islam in ottoman system that sultans generally replace them but when you and i become deputies in a parliament and try to pass law the same ulema with exception an enlightened one say no you are ordinary people again of 2020 again following your egos you can make law so how come a sultan with sword make law but intellectuals or the bourgeoisie cannot make law because we don't have power to really force ulema to give us the justification the, the ulema is, are smart they know what would sultan do to them by coercion and in this condition the merchants the bourgeoisie was the weak they never had the chance like the english bourgeoisie to gather an army to be and then uh, behead and kill the king and push the church away that didn't happen in all history and then we there is this continuous undermining of the merchants and the justice system when the sultan decide to kill his brothers could ulama interfere and say no never happened when the sultan want to declare a war against a muslim state like the mamluks the ulama always rubber stamp when the sultan expropriate private property what did ulama say did they say no no they were shut up they, they were silent the tanzimat declaration 1839 toward the end of the ottoman empire declared finally 1839 that the ottoman state recognized the life property and dignity honor of their subjects they didn't say liberty <laughs> john yeah, locke yeah. has life liberty property the ottoman yeah. says no it is property life and honor until that time the ulama never asked the sultan to respect private property therefore it's not true that there was a judicial system independent of executive it's overly romanticizing i see okay interesting um 
Ahmed Kuru, thank you for your time. Uh, it was, a, I think, great conversation. It was too long, much longer than I thought it would be, but I think it will be interesting for a lot of people to listen. Uh, there will be, you know, subtitles here. Uh, there will be audio. So, uh, again, thank you for your time. And our guest was Ahmed Kuru. He's the author of Islam, Authoritarianism, and Underdevelopment. He's a professor of political science at San Diego State University. And we talked mainly about uh, his book and his ideas and his uh, worldview. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure to have this very insightful conversation with you.